Welcome everyone to another episode of There's Just Something About Kansas City. And I have to admit, we're in a different venue than we normally are, and I am way out over my skis today <laughs> because of this young lady sitting right beside me. Of course, of course, it's Joyce DiDonato. multi-Grammy Awards. She's also international opera star. And I just can't tell you, Joyce, how great it is that I'm sitting here next to you, knowing everything I know about you and the fact that you are just Joyce from Kansas. I just love that. <laughs> from Prairie Village. I'm yeah. freaking out because I watched you growing up. <laughs> and it was like, what did the Royals do tonight? What's Frank got to say about it? You were such a part of our family growing up. So I, I'm very excited to, to be here. And I love that you're doing this for Kansas City. I love that we're getting this kind of snapshot about this amazing, vibrant city that I sort of feel is like finding herself again. Yeah, it, it has. It's gone through some transitions even since I've been here. I've been here since 1981. And it has gone through its ups and, its ups and downs. But right now, it is phenomenal the, uh, the trajectory that this city is on in this part of the state. I flew in the other day uh, and I was kind of a little bit jet lagged and I was flying and I was getting off the plane and I walked in, I was like, yeah. And then I went, this is the new airport. <laughs> and I, I knew it was coming and I knew it had been open, but I hadn't sort of put the pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah. And I was so proud walking through there. I mean, I, I miss a little bit the short jet to get your baggage, <laughs> I, just a little I bit. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> a little bit. But then I, I, it, I feel like it represents Kansas City so well. It felt so vibrant. It felt like, ah, there's, you know, there's the barbecue, there's the jazz, there's a great bookstore. And I just thought it's great art, mm -hmm. you know, put out. It looked like it was done really well. And I thought, ah, this is a destination now. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And it's interesting because without the airport, no NFL draft and no World Cup 2026. So the airport, it hinged, those two events hinged on Kansas City getting a new airport and they let us know right away, we're not gonna bring a draft there unless you have a better airport than you have. So despite that short distance, not only to the luggage, but then also from the luggage to the front sidewalk, it's sort of all gone now, but it's okay yeah. because the rest really worked out. You lose well. some, you win some, but I feel like it was a big gain. <laughs> I feel like it's a big gain for Kansas City. How yeah. often do you get back to KC? You know, about last time I was here uh, was April um, for a slaughtering of the Kansas City Royals against the New York Yankees. <laughs> and uh, um, I come back at least once a year. Okay. And I've been really always trying to make sure that I um, come and sing once a year if I can. Um, and it's a little tricky because I, I always wish I had more time around my stops over here. But... Um, but I love it, and it's always, you know, I get the updates from my family, and I yeah. feel like I keep in close touch. Yeah, how much of I, you know, my wife and I both know Paul very well, okay, and... Uh, Paul is my brother. It's, it's her brother, Paul, and... My big brother. Your big brother. Well, <laughs> you were the sixth of seven, yeah. so you had a lot of uh, elder statesmen in the family besides you. <laughs> what... Uh, how about the rest of the family in the suburbs? Are they, are a lot of them still here in Kansas City? 
So four of the siblings were based here. Okay. Um, my oldest sister was, uh, for over 30 years, the um, grade school music teacher at St. Anne's, uh -huh. where we all went to school, where my dad was the church choir director for years, wow. where my parents were married in 55. So that legacy of, of that is um, quite established. Um, and I have a sister that teaches tennis um, in one of the clubs. Um, my brother lays brick all over the city and, and you know, charms people with yeah, his amazing personality. <laughs> um, and my sister Emily has worked in high school, Rockhurst High School and for advertising companies. So we have a, um, we have a, a really good um, infiltration and into various parts of the city. So we grew up in Prairie Village, mm -hmm. but we've gone to Lenexa and, you know, all different parts. Branched of out. Branched out. A little bit. Well, yeah. talk a little bit about growing up. I know that's a big family, big Irish family. Yeah. Seven, uh, seven, you had six siblings. You were sixth of the seven. Yeah. So you were sort of, if, if this happens correctly in most families, the oldest one is always the one that's the golden child for all practical purposes. And then the youngest one, mom and dad are so tired by that time. That one just gets forgotten. And they're spoiled rotten, okay? That one's just, sure, do whatever you want. We're tired or whatever. So how was that in your family? And, and how great was it growing up with that kind of a clan? It was, it was not far from that. Um, you know, my dad uh, was an architect and mm -hmm. worked from home. Um, but, you know, not the greatest businessman, I have to say. And so he, he, his priority was always more about the art and the work itself and not kind of ambition. And my mom stayed home for so long to take care of the seven of us. And so there, was, there were some real struggles financially. Mm -hmm. And so that meant from the time of about 13 on, most of us were working second and third job. Well, I mean, we had school and then we would work a part-time job or another. Mm -hmm. And so from 13, I was starting to work. Most of us worked in restaurants. Tippin's Pie Pantry put a lot of us oh, through high school and college. Um, and so it was a real sort of that work ethic mm -hmm. in the family. If we wanted to go on summer vacation, we all had to contribute. Um, and so it was, it was not always easy but I think all of us, you know, we knew if we wanted to go to college, if we wanted to have a get mm -hmm. married and have a wedding, we kind of had to make it happen. And so I think all seven of us really learned what it is to kind of work hard. Yeah. And that for sure is one of the reasons I've been able to do what I do is because I, I'm not afraid of hard work. Yeah, and it, it has been as we will talk. We will talk about your career as well, and some of the struggles that you went through to become the star, the international mm. star. I know you don't like to hear that, but <laughs> the international star that, that you are, because it wasn't, um, you know, one of these, uh, you know, the shooting star type mm -hmm. thing. It took you a long time to get yeah. where you ended up and where you are today. Um, talk a little bit about. You said your, your dad was the choir director? He yeah. was. So is that where you, was everybody in the family musical or was it just you or was it, there were several siblings also that were? It was a huge musical family and we had, you know, my brother Paul was in the basement <laughs> with his friends listening to ACDC and, and Def Purple and, Love AC you know. All of that, yeah. So that was coming from the basement, right. along with a few other things. And then, you know, the middle floor was where our piano was. Mm -hmm. And my two oldest sisters both went to college to as in piano performance. Mm -hmm. I feel like I was sort of playing the piano before I was almost walking because I was over there going, what's this do? And that was, there was always this kind of live music happening throughout mm -hmm. the house as well. Um, and my father was working in the office with KXTR. 
you know, playing oh, the, yes, classical the classical music. music yes. Absolutely. Oh, we need that back. Yeah. <laughs> and upstairs, my sisters had her LP, and it was Fleetwood Mac and Barbra Streisand and Billy Joel. And so we had sort of, and cocktail hour on Sunday was big band. So we had Glenn Miller going right. in the middle. And so there were all these layers, constant, the language of music was always there. And then my father, you know, on Wednesday nights and on Sunday, and especially around Easter and Christmas, it was all about the choir. And it had a huge impact on me because it was, it's how I experienced sort of the basis of faith and liturgy mm -hmm. was through the musical world of it. Um, and then I went into high school at Bishop Miege and my place was in the choir and in the theater department. You knew that I knew early it. on. And that's what you, at that point, now you're only you know, 15 years old at that point, 14, 15 years old. Did you, did you know that was gonna be a trajectory for life or you just really enjoyed it? It was almost like an extracurricular activity or was it something you had a real passion for it? I time? had a real passion and I knew, it never occurred to me that it wouldn't be a part of my life. Mm -hmm. I guess. Uh -huh. What I was certain of at 16, 17 is that I would be a high school music teacher, a choral teacher. Like your sister. Like, my, well, she did she was grade, grade school. school, right? Yeah, school, but like Mr. Wolf, who was my teacher at Bishop Miege because it was, the choir experience there, it just completely opened up my worldview. You know, we were singing in other languages. We were singing music from two and three centuries before. We were singing about love and joy and sorrow and death and all of this. And it was just, it was um, a real instrument for me to sort of, during those adolescent years, mm -hmm. try to at least feel like I wasn't going off the axis of the earth. <laughs> that as a human being, I, I was tethered to something. There was a bigger human condition at play. I mean, and I'm putting, you know, a 54-year-old sure. look on that. Mm -hmm. But it was, I think there was something so um, profound about that experience that it tethered me into the world when I didn't really know where else my place was. Sure. And it was also community. It's why, I mean, this is maybe for another podcast, but getting, you know, we have sports everywhere mm -hmm. in this country, which Teams. is great, which is great. Right. But it's competitive. And a choir is coming together in a team using your total unique voice, but combining it with others. You mm -hmm. take away your voice and it's not the same choir. So everybody's needed, but you're working together for something bigger. And simply for the joy and the exercise of expressing something and sharing it. That's different than sports. Right. And I'm a huge sports fan. Sports is competition. We got to win. Got to get the other guy. Right. You're, you suck. We're great. Well, uh, you know? And in the choir world, it was everybody was welcome. And it was how can we create something even more beautiful mm -hmm. and bigger? And that was, it was a lifeline for me, really, like l literally a lifeline for me. Was um, it, a, was it a, a social thing for you as well? Meaning, you know, when you have, you have guys playing football or baseball or whatever they have, they call that their fraternity. Yeah. So a lot of guys go to college or play football, they're not in a fraternity. I've got my fraternity, they're all my teammates. Yeah. Was that what it was like for you? That was, very it was very social for you as well? Very much. Besides being 
you know, what you wanted to no, do. No, I mean, it's, those are your people, uh -huh. you know, like-minded people. And, you know, the last concert of the senior year, we're all crying. We're not singing, <laughs> we're crying. We'll never have anything like this again. And uh, it, yeah, it was family. And yeah. it tends to, I think sometimes in the art world, it can feel a little bit more like misfits, a little bit people that are a little bit on the edge and that this is a place where they're something that maybe doesn't fit into like normal society. They're a little bit weird. They're a little bit off the, the center mark. They're welcome in a place like that. Yes. They're welcome to express who they are. And I know it's a lifeline for so many people. Mm -hmm. And it's not just to find community, but there's something really, really powerful about moving emotion through you mm -hmm. on your breath, phonating it and putting it out into the world. You know, we're sometimes taught to keep stuff oh, in, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And this is, you have permission to sing about love or despair or fear or joy. And it's just, I see it very much, especially the longer I go in this, I see it very much as medicine. Right. Did it's you, medicinal. did you, um, did you, was there a lot of that kind, your kind of passion? Could you see it in the other members of your choir in high school? Or were you more passionate than a lot of the others? I'll tell you a story. <laughs> this is, it falls into the pathetic category, but I don't care. Is my, the first week of high school, Bishop Mies, right? Pretty important week in the life of an adolescent. First week of high school. And I had been waiting for like two years for this because it meant you could audition for the musical. Mm -hmm. And Mihaj did really good musicals. And so I, I worked up my, my part, I was memorized, I was ready to go. And I was singing, wouldn't it be loverly from My Fair Lady. Oh, right. So Eliza Doolittle, she's, you know, yeah. a flower maiden in London. And then she turns into this gorgeous princess. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't pick the princess song. I was the, you know, the ashen, you right. know, um, flower, flower girl on the street. Mm -hmm. And my dad dropped me off and we were auditioning in the library at the time because they didn't have an auditorium. And it was seven o'clock on a Wednesday night, my third day of high school. And I walked into the library and the first person I see is Joel Carlton, who's a junior. Yeah. <laughs> I like this. <laughs> And the next thing I noticed, man. a leading man. <laughs> and the next thing I noticed was nobody else was in costume. <laughs> I had put on my mom's gardening hat, oh, her kitchen gosh. apron. I had a basket full of plastic flowers. I showed up in costume. If none of you are familiar with uh, high school auditions, you don't show up in costume. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so mortified, but I remember, Frank, I remember thinking, aren't these people committed? Yeah, right. Don't they want that? Don't they understand what it takes, you know? And I had no idea what I was doing, but I felt like it was something strong in me mm -hmm. that, that I wanted to be there. But if I'm the director, you got the role. I mean, I look around everybody else and just go, oh, heck with them. Uh, I'm going to take her. I don't she think, already showed up in costume. I don't think it had anything to do with how I sang or what I did. I just think they felt sorry for me. We got to give her something. You know? <laughs> um, but it was just, yeah. I, but I remember thinking, don't, aren't they taking this seriously? <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Did anyone else uh, from that choir follow your path in music and become 
or use it as a career or anything of that nature that you can remember? I have some colleagues from college that okay, did it, from but Wichita I don't State, think yeah. from, we'll from that, high school. Um, but they, yeah, a lot of teachers and a lot of people that, you know, some sports folks. Um, we were very good in volleyball. Yes, very. Very good in volleyball. Uh, girls in basketball. Yeah, and Always basketball terrific. Yeah. Basketball. yeah. Yeah. So they, uh, yeah, BH yeah, is an incredible place now. It really yeah. is an incredible school. I mean, it was always a good school, but now it's just, boy, they've gone up and over the top. It's, oh, I'm it's so happy. Yeah, I'm it's so really, happy to hear really that. really good place. Yeah, their football yeah. program, basketball program, they're all very, very successful. Music program. I'm sure the music program <laughs> is as well, okay? So from there, you get to, I don't know, your junior or senior year, and you're starting to think about college at this point. Yeah. And I know you ended up at Wichita State. We'll talk about why Wichita State, but was there any any other school on your radar KU, MU? No. So my older oh, sister wow. went okay. to K-State. Okay. So I, that would have been an option. We were not allowed to like KU. Okay. I don't know why. I don't know why, where that comes from. Yeah. MU was kind of was never on our radar screen yeah. for whatever reason. Um, but Wichita State is where my high school teacher, my college teacher, went to college. And that was? Uh, Mr. Wolf. Mr. Carl Wolf. Wolf. Okay. And he was always in contact with Dr. Boughton, who ran the um, choral program at Wichita State. I went, I drove up to Minnesota, and I looked at a Catholic school up there. Um, who knows where my life would have gone in that? I think it was an all, I think it was a Catholic, a girls' college, I think. Okay. And it was primarily a teacher's college. Right. So I was thinking, maybe if it's more teaching, I'll go there. And it just, you know, there was something about Wichita State, the choral program, the legacy mm -hmm. From mine, it really it spoke to me. Yeah, and really in your mind, you wanted to become a teacher and then maybe play musical theater or whatever. But your mind was you wanted to be a little bit like your sister, correct? You wanted to go and you wanted to teach. I wanted to be the cool high school choral teacher, absolutely. <laughs> and at that point, I mean, I would do the musicals, I would do plays at Amnesia, and I loved being on stage and I loved the choral concerts. I never thought of myself as having any possibility of of doing it as a profession. Right. It just didn't, it wasn't on my radar screen at all. So I just thought I'm going to college, I'm gonna be a teacher. And so you're thinking maybe you'd end up coming back to Kansas City or whatever, right? Probably. Yeah, that's probably, because everybody was here, so your yeah. family was here. And that's what you did. Yeah, you know? sure. You, came, you went to college and you came back home and you start a family and you know you do all of that. Okay, so here comes the, uh, the pass. <laughs> one path goes this way, one path goes this way. One path comes back up north, and the other path goes, we don't know where, but where did that all come from, and when did you change your mind about what your career was going to be? So it was as, as I did five years at Wichita State, and it was sort of the third year that I was taking voice lessons in order to then teach it you know, to a, a choral group. And I was finishing my ed degree, um, music ed. And I was getting more and more really fascinated with this classical music vocal. I would, my dad would go to the William Jewell programs. He'd listen mm -hmm. to the Met Opera. Um, it never really caught me by listening to it. I didn't really get the opera thing. I didn't understand. They were like, ooh, I don't know what that is. Um, but as I was studying the mechanism, the technique of what this is meant to do. Um, and then I was starting to sing music that was really profound and dealing with really the human condition in its essence. It just sort of lit my world on fire. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't particularly good, 
But there was something in me that I was like, I love this. And I started getting a, doing a little bit more work with the opera department, mm -hmm. sort of on the side, with a fantastic opera director, George Gibson, who was just, um, just a mensch in the best way. And I went through, I got my degree, I did my student teaching at Wichita, and I was in two really, really rough schools, um, high school in the morning and, and an elementary school in the afternoon. And poor and huge challenges. And I saw these kids and I just thought, they need great teaching. Um, I think I have to do this. And I went to my dad and I will never forget. I said, dad, I said, I'm really torn because I love being on stage, but I think I need to be in the classroom, but mm -hmm. I, I, I love this. Growing up Catholic, I thought, I love it. Must not be good. <laughs> you got, the guilt comes out. Okay, what do I do? Where's the lightning bolt to the window? Totally. Yeah. Totally. And, you know, he really gave me the key to opening up the rest of my life. And he said, Joyce, um, he said, there's more than one way to teach people. There's more than one way to educate and mm -hmm. communicate and reach them. And that was license for me to follow this thing that I loved. But he sort of gave me a North Star yeah. that said, you know, go in that direction, but don't forget like why you're doing it. Yeah. So dad was very, very influential from very. a very, very early age, right? Yeah, so, very yeah. much. So you are a mezzo-soprano. Now, believe me, now I'm really out over my skis, okay? So you did not start as a mezzo-soprano, correct? Because somewhere along the line, you, ch you had to change because you weren't getting to where you wanted to go. Right? So, yes. Yeah. I Now, this isn't right after college. It's about your mid-20s somewhere, right? 20. Let's say 26. Okay. So, yeah. you're, starting to get re you're starting to apply and do things and sing or whatever, and people are saying, meh. They're eh, going to, eh. Yeah. yeah. 100%. I, I mean, I've always sort of gone into the category of mezzo-soprano. That's just the range of where I sing. But it was, you know, I would do a big competition, and I would come in sixth. Okay. So a little bit of encouragement, but like not that. Yeah. And other people, especially the kind of voice that I have, which blooms a little bit earlier than some of the bigger voiced um, opera folks, other people were starting to pass me by. And people, the, the folks I was studying with, just I kind of confounded them. They didn't mm -hmm. know what to do with me. And I still am not sure why I stayed at it. But there was this kind of Irish defiance, like, oh, got it. And I kind of stayed with it. And at 26, through, through hard work, but a lot of luck as well, a couple of things had to happen for me to mm -hmm. end up. Um, I got into a really coveted position at the Houston Grand Opera um, as a, a, one of the young artists. Right. And this is after a couple of years of, I've got to go a different way here. I've got to do something else in order to get, attract people's attention. Well, and, and this frustration of why don't they see it? Yeah. Why don't they get it? Like yeah. everything I have inside of me, why why don't they see it? Or or do you see during oh, auditions or whatever, you see somebody else, I'm better than she is. I'm, I'm better than that. I'm better than that. <laughs> In some cases, yes. I always looked at it very objectively. Like I can do that better, but I don't have that yet. Okay. And I would always look like without, mm, without, I thought the more information I have, the more I can learn, yeah. the more I can improve. So I never shied away from like, that's not like, I don't do that well. Okay. I need to work on that, but I do that really well. I'm going to do that sure. even more, that kind of thing. Sure. Mm -hmm. 
which is, you know, part of just the business of being a singer. Yeah. You have to know what you do well. Um, That's business, period. 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 Yeah, and know your unique know worth. Your, know your lane. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> stay in your lane. I'm sorry. Know your audience and stay in your lane. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. or at least know how to pass well. Yeah. Um, so my <laughs> first lesson, my first week, um, again, the first week, um, when I was in the Houston Opera Studio, I took a lesson with the teacher who was assigned to me, and he vocalized me for about four minutes, and he said, Joyce, I can see you're really talented. I can see you're really smart, uh, but there's no future in the way you're singing because you're singing on youth and muscle. Okay. Here we get into sports world sure too. Sure we do, yeah. And that's only going to last so long. And I, because I was just old enough and it was just hard enough, I knew he was right. And so I said, okay, let's fix it. And it was a three-year turnaround process. Wow. I mean, imagine a pitcher who has to rework its technique. Yeah. Right? It's, you have to, first of all, let go of the muscle memory of how you always did it. Then you have to relearn the new technique. And then there's a period you have to start trusting it. Right. And then it has, you have to make it yours. So it was like a three-year process. And I was 29 around when that finished. I left the Houston Opera Studio Nobody wanted to represent me as a manager. Everybody else in the studio who I was with got management except me. And I went to Europe and I did a competition that's run by Placido Domingo. Wow. And somebody heard me there and said, I think you're going to be a huge star and I want to represent you worldwide. Wow. It's from London. I'd never heard that language before. I, you know, I was leaving the studio. I was working in Kentucky, Tulsa, in Arizona, and I thought that's <laughs> that's, where that's I'm gonna, gonna end be up. my career. And you know what? That's great because I don't have to wait tables anymore. Right? Okay. Sure. I think I'll be able to pay One my rent. One step at a time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he just blew that wide open, and I thought, "What are you talking about?" He goes, "No, you're going to be a big star," and he's the first one who really saw wow. it. Wow. And because of that sort of three-year process of really, really going deep to figure out the technique and then trusting it. When it broke, I was ready. Yeah. And being said no to and refusing and knowing you were talented uh, and refusing to give it up. Okay. Because I know you probably had a fallback plan of some kind, right? You might teach or maybe wait, do Tulsa, always, Tulsa or, you know, Frankfurt, Kentucky. I can always go back and wait tables. No, I still I feel that. Like, I was like, hi, my right. name is Joyce. I'll be your servant tonight. <laughs> right. If there's anything else you can Hi, I'm Joyce from Kansas. Yeah. And I'll be glad to do it. <laughs> Don't do I know you? No, no, no. That's somebody else. <laughs> Must have been my doppelganger. Um, so you then, I just can't. So what was your first opera that you can remember where you're going to step out onto a stage of a major metropolitan opera company from somewhere in the world? And I'm it. I am it. I'm on the, I'm on the program. I'm on the marquee. I'm everywhere. Okay, you, see, I do don't remember? think that... Uh, you're making me nervous. Like, like that. Um, there, there, there's two things that stand out when you ask me that question. And the first is, I was actually a cover. I was un, an understudy. And I was covering a huge role in a Handel opera at the Chicago Lyric Opera. Okay. And it was a starry, starry, starry cast. It was like the top singers in the world. Renee mm -hmm. Fleming, Natalie Desai, Jennifer Larmore. And I was just a cover. But I remember sitting, the covers, the understudies, we sit in the back corner, we don't talk okay. to anybody, you don't talk to the stars, you just kind of show up. And if you have to do something, you do it, but, and then you disappear. But I remember <laughs> sitting in that corner just thinking, and this was right when I'd left Houston, so I was about 29. 
And I just said, if I had to go on with this starry cast, mm -hmm. I could hold my own. And that was a mental shift that I made. It's like, I'm ready. And you know, it wasn't, I didn't go on, I didn't get applause or anything, but it was a shift in my mental world mm -hmm. about how I saw myself. And I think that had to happen because for so long I was in the mentality of, well, why don't they get it? Why don't they get it? Why don't they see it? What's wrong? What am I not doing enough of? And I needed that gear shift to propel me. Um, and then one of the first major things I did in Europe was at La Scala, oh, which gosh. is in Milan, yes. in Italy, and it's Absolutely. the lion's den. That's it. Yeah, and there's all these horror stories of being booed and be, you know, especially Sounds as an like American. Sounds like Philadelphia. Totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or it's like, you know, yeah, it's, it's totally. Right. And uh, I was doing a, uh, the lead role in a Rossini opera. Um, I was in the second cast. Um, but it was still, I was going to have to get out and I'd do the finale of the opera and everything. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, okay, Joyce, if you open up your mouth and they start booing, what are you going to do? I'm going to keep singing. I'm going to keep singing. I'm going to keep singing. I didn't have any rehearsal time. So I just went out there with no rehearsal. And I'll never forget, it was going, they didn't boo. And it was going well, and it was going well, and it was going well, and it all leads up to the last aria, the grand finale. And I have to do an a entrance where I'm way upstage, right in the center, and a scrim comes up, and I appear, and then I make this long walk down to center stage, and then I sing. And there was this old <clears throat> Italian pro who walks me, and he took my hand, and he goes, you got this. And I went out, and then I saw the conductor, Bruno Campanella, down in the front, and when the fireworks happened, the Ari, he just went. And it was like they, they were on my side. And there was a huge ovation. And it was really, it was, I knew I was ready. Mm -hmm. But there's always, a, you never know how they're going to like it. This is the weird thing about opera is, you know, it's different than sports, right? right? We don't get a score. We don't have a winner and a loser. And you can be considered a great singer and other people will go, I don't get it. Yeah. You'll still read about it in the paper the next day, though. You, yeah, I did well. <laughs> okay. I did well. There won't be a box score there, but you're going to read about you're it. Read I about did. It. But it's an opinion. Yeah. It's not like he struck out, you know, right, the I last three. Yeah. It's like, it's still like, oh, her top or the this or the that. And it's always subjective what we do. And so there has to be a kind of mental discipline about no matter what, I'm going to do what I do. And mm -hmm. that has to be enough. Sure. And it's, it's frightening and it's exhilarating um, and it's frightening. And then, and then, it, then it exploded. Then everything yeah. for probably at least the next decade or so just really was, you performed in every, with every great symphony orchestra, with every great opera company, in every great venue in the entire world. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a question. What's your favorite venue you have ever done an opera? Okay, this is no lie. I love the Kaufman Center. Okay. And it is really one of the best acoustics in the world. I can kind of say that. Right. Um, and I love coming home here, and I love that. Um, and it's also nerve-wracking, but I love it. Yeah, because you're home. Yeah. <laughs> there, you know, there are a few places that are so historic and so 
Mm, filled with ghosts, like sure. good ghosts of the past. Mm -hmm. Carnegie Hall is one of those. Um, the Teatro Colon in Argentina is one of those that you just, it's one of those, you walk on and you feel everybody that's come before you and you feel the part of, the, the kind of legacy you are a part of. Mm -hmm. um, the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam is that. I'm, I'm, you know, you're standing on the stage where Mahler debuted and conducted some of his symphonies in that space. And it is, you know, they, these feel like temples in mm -hmm. a way. And it's, they are. They are. Mm -hmm. You're right, they are. And you, you just have this sense of, oh, now it's my turn. And tomorrow it will be somebody else's turn, but tonight I have a responsibility. Right. And those are the places I really, I love to be. Yeah, that's, uh, that's incredible. And then um, London. Yeah. Huge as well, huge. right? Yeah. Yeah. Right, exactly. There are, you know, now, I mean, because I've been around a while now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I've sung in London a lot and Vienna a lot. And, and, you know, those places that are filled with music all the time. New York, you know, they, it's all the time. I've started now making sure I put in my calendar some off the beaten track places. And in particular, this last year, I was in like Katowice in Poland. Mm -hmm. I was in Riga in Latvia. These places that don't always get, you know, that they have three choices on a Friday night about what they want to hear. Right. And I'm loving singing for these audiences that are so appreciative of something really special coming to them. Right. Um, and, and they're that's, starved for it too. Yeah. They want it. Badly. They want it. And yes. they appreciate it. They don't take right. it for granted. Right. You know, I love London. I love Vienna, but there is a little bit. Yeah, a little or bit. Paris, ah. you know, like, oh, yeah, well, who is it tonight, you know? <laughs> And it's fine, and I, and, and I love singing there, and, and I have a relationship with the audiences that I love, but there is something exhilarating about singing for people that don't have it all the time. Yeah, and you are an activist, for all practical purposes, and uh, you take that to heart. I know you, um, you did uh, uh, in, uh, in War and Peace after the Paris attacks. Uh, mm -hmm. You did that, and that probably touched your heart very much to be able to do that there and uh, you know in that kind of a situation and one of the last performances there I think maybe been the last performance you ended up talking to Ruth Bader yeah. Ginsburg yeah after that concert was over what yeah. was she like and what was that like for you to meet her well, this was a three-year project that I did and it was the first one that I sort of produced and curated um, I was meant to do an entirely different, very operatic program, and this terrorist attack in, in 15, 15. Mm -hmm. happened, in, in, and it was one of several that had been going on, and I just thought, when is it going to be enough? Like, and I, my work, my um, instrument, the, 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 the material I work with goes back centuries and it's been singing about the same thing that I was reading in op-eds or that people were protesting right, about, or, right. you know, war. When is it going to be enough? Or I want revenge. I want revenge. I want my due. Or I give up. I can't take it anymore. I mean, all these emotions that are around these things, it's been happening for centuries. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I want to use this music that is that I, I believe comes from some kind of higher place. You know, Mozart. Handel, mm -hmm. Gluck, you know, they were connected to something. Um, I don't profess to know what it is, <laughs> but I know it's something bigger than, than myself. 
And so I put together this program to really go to start in, at the time, I think it was 2016 that we launched it or 17, in the heat of all this chaos and conflict and to really throughout two hours in the concert hall go into a place of light deliberately. And it was really an extraordinary um, journey. And I delib- and we went on four continents. We went North America, Europe, uh, Asia, uh, and South America. But I knew I wanted to end in the belly of the beast in D.C. Mm-hmm. And we went to the Kennedy Center, and it was our last concert. And Justice Ginsburg came to the concert. Wow. And the next morning we did, it was one of her last talks. Yes, that's what I thought. And she, she met me walking in as we were going to do the talk in the morning. And she, she was very soft-spoken. You had to work very hard to, to catch every word because mm-hmm. she didn't waste any syllable. And so I was leaning over and she said, thank you for last night. For two hours, I forgot about all the briefs sitting on my desk. Oh. <laughs> That is wonderful. And, and that's I, what it's all about, isn't it? That is the bottom line for everything that you do. That is it. You make people trans, you know, uh, transform from being out here and having all these problems to yeah. sit down and I can enjoy this and just be uh, you know, mesmerized by what's going so on. So I think my me. activism is born in that, in that I get so angry that we have all the tools at our disposal for peace. Right. For uh, community, mm-hmm. for calm, for, you know, what I love about a concert or an opera is that 2,000 people from all different backgrounds, well, maybe right. not all different backgrounds, but, you know, a lot of different belief systems, a lot of different points of view of looking at the world, a lot of different, you, everybody comes in with a different life experience at that moment. And we all agree to sort of take a journey together. Mm-hmm. And we have, in the, in the case of my world, you know, these masters that are leading us in this music. And I've gotten a little bit impatient, and so I challenge my audiences, not, a, not every time, but I don't, I'm not afraid to sit here and say, what are you going to do to take this feeling home with you? It's not enough right now to just escape for two hours. Right in a lovely concert hall. Go live it. Take it home Mm -hmm. and cultivate it and nourish it in your home. And then maybe your block. And then, you know, it's very naive, but it's it's possible. And we have such an amazing example in this music and the harmony and the discord and the disharmony and how it resolves and how it struggles and how it breathes. It's the human experience. And I... I, I want to challenge people that experience that to say, go home and live it a little yeah. bit more. Very, very interesting as well, too, which I thought was uh, the Lullaby Project. Oh. Okay, with the, um, you know, you, you sold, you were encouraging single moms in the Bronx to go home and write what you sing to your children. Yeah. Because they, a lot of them weren't singing a normal, I don't know, lullaby their kids they were singing something they had in their own mind or whatever and you told them to go home what what was that like and and what kind of results did you get from those women who were a lot of them in very very dire straits as we can just Mm -hmm. imagine probably tons of single moms if -hmm. not all of them uh to go home and try to have enough joy in your life to be able to have your child and then sing to them it's it's an incredible project and and 
um, I just want to make sure it's not mine. I got involved with it, but it was set up by Carnegie Hall, the Weill Institute at mm -hmm. Carnegie Hall, and some amazing visionaries there. Um, because they, they were noticing that, you know, at the time, particularly single teenage moms, mm -hmm. they were not bonding with their kids. Shame, guilt, stress, economic issue, no help from the family. Oh, you know, all these no elements. No time, no money. No time. <clears throat> Imagine. And they thought, how can we, as like a music institute, how can we help? And they sit, decided to sit down with these moms and help them write a lullaby to their kid and get it recorded. Bonding happened. Mm -hmm. The moms were able to articulate, I love you. There's one song that I, I sing, it's like, I feel you and you're, I hope I'm not squishing you at night. She, she's speaking as she's pregnant and you know, I'm just wishing you peace tonight. Mm -hmm. And it is transformative, not only for these moms, but the kids then start to grow up, sing my song. Mm -hmm. And that's such a beautiful thing. And it is now, it's gone out, they do it in prisons. They have expanded across the globe. I do some work with an amazing organization in Athens at a refugee camp, and it's part of El Sistema Greece. And they've started songwriting with the wow. mothers there in the camp, and it is transformative. Wow. There's a mother, this is an unbelievable story. Um, it's a family from Sierra Leone, and they came with two boys and she was pregnant, and her husband, so a family of four and a half. And she came from a really horrible family, and she was about to be indoctrinated into this cult where there's genital mutilation, and, da -da -da, mm -hmm. and they were gonna put her in a place of leadership. And they decided to flee but they could only take two of their four kids with oh them. Oh my God. She left two kids behind. And she wrote a song and they performed it and the whole family, the, well, the family of four was there listening to this being performed. And it was, they, they wept through it, but it, for, the, for that family there, it was so therapeutic. Mm -hmm. It was, um, a place for them to work through this incomprehensible, mm -hmm. tragic life, but in a way that say, but life still is going on. Mm -hmm. Life is still moving forward. And how are you going to stand up and, and make the best of whatever it is, even though it's so horribly wrong that it's not everything. Yeah. And I've started doing this now. I have a new project called Eden where I'm getting the kids in youth choirs, we've done 40 cities so far, mm -hmm. to write their own music. And it teaches them to first of all express something and not just, you know, <laughs> to express something, to take ownership of their thoughts through music yeah. and to share it with people and to sure. stand up and sing it. And I just know that this is such a sane, potent medicine in going forward for the world. Yes. And it has to start with the kids. Yeah. And uh, have them, whatever kind of music they like is what they're going to express in that kind of music. Which is, Could be anything. Anything, absolutely. I, in right. Milan, yeah. we were doing Eden in Milan, and we went yeah. into a juvenile uh, facility with, with kids, and most of them were Moroccan and, and refugee kids right. that had been put into this thing. And they, I was singing Ombra Mai Fu with eight uh, string players. 
which is Handel written 400 years ago. It's very tranquil. It's very beautiful. It's about sitting under a tree. And this 16-year-old kid from Morocco got up in Spanish and started freestyle rapping over it <laughs> about, Mom, I'm so sorry. Uh, and he was like, you mama. I mean, I don't know how it was. Right. Obviously, I don't do this. But, but he was really into it. And the and other 16 kids were really encouraging him. I'm so sorry. I should have listened to you. It's been four months since I've heard your voice. I miss you. I'm sorry. I should have listened to you. And he was just, for five minutes, he was just freestyling. And he kept telling us to play louder. So yeah, he had to more. To mix it. He could yeah. mix it. Yes. And it was amazing. Yes. And I thought, this is a whole nother project. Wow. That's you know, true. that's phenomenal. But yeah. but where are kids being given the chance now to express who they are? Yeah. In a safe way. Yeah. And you also express yourself different ways. You have song play. Came out. You won a Grammy for song play, but singing jazz and Latin and yeah. uh, you know doing all that sort of thing. So you know, you're not just in that one venue. You use your voice in, in many many different ways. So I congratulations mean, on song play. Thank you. Which was just incredible. That's very much a tribute to like my house. Yeah, all these different styles of music. You know, that's it's really yeah, yeah. That's what I was born into. And I was out there, Game Seven, two thousand fourteen. You weren't a jinx, okay? You weren't a jinx. Okay. You sang the national anthem before Game Seven uh, when they played the Giants, and you could have gotten Madison Bumgarner to stay in the dugout somehow or whatever. But he didn't. He came back out in the world's last game, but it's game. okay. Well, what was that? What was that? Being back here and then to sing, and you love baseball to be able to sing here in Kansas City in the world It was just about the most freaking great day of my life. <laughs> and it was not even a childhood dream because I don't know, I just like, who dreams that? It was the coolest thing. I mean, I, the other thing besides music and mm. my family was the radio and the Royals games sure. every summer. And we would get peanuts and listen on the Danny radio. Matthews. Danny Matthews. Danny Matthews, <laughs> amen. I'll never forget it. I think it was 1977. It was the first time we went to a Royals game, all nine of us, which oh, was a gosh. big deal. We were in the last row way up there. Dennis Leonard was pitching, and he was that big. <laughs> and we were like, oh. And there was Amos Otis, oh, Cookie yeah. Rojas, Daryl Porter. Freddie Patek. Uh, Freddie Patek. <laughs> I mean, my sister and I shared a room, and the first thing we would do is get the newspaper in the summer and quiz each other on the box scores. Oh, wow. You know, what did Hal McRae do? Oh, he went, you know, three for four. Sure. And, well, who was the third baseman? Oh, yeah. I, All right. I forget that guy's name. Just yeah. What number did he wear? Uh, it was five. I mean, I forget what that kid's name was. It was. It was just that was my. Especially, he was just getting started. Yeah, <laughs> George Brett was. Yeah. He was. He was. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. I just, I, I remember all of it. And Amos Otis was my favorite player. Um, so his was the jersey that I wore. I wore his number wow. for the World Series. Um, I don't know why he was, but he was. John Mayberry, that stretch from oh. first base. You know, I mean, Big John's a great guy too. Really? Just a good guy. Tell him I said Wonderful hi. Wonderful, I will. <laughs> I'm sure we'll go, oh, I remember Joyce. <laughs> and Frank White. I mean, just yeah. all of it. And so it was, you know, I'm, I'm a fair weather, weather Chiefs fan. I'll be honest. Like, I love it. I'm glad when they're doing well. But, like, I'm a Royals girl. Yeah. And it just, so when that happened, and they were playing so well, and it was such a good team, yeah. that whole thing. And, and I just... I loved singing the anthem. I was nervous, but the best oh, part funny. was being one where, of where you have sung in your life. 
where you've done your operas and you're nervous at the case. Dude, it was the seventh <laughs> game of the World Series. Of course I was. But it was arriving at the, at the theater, at the stadium, mm -hmm. before anybody else was there because you had to get there early for a sound check. And it was that, you know, they were doing the lawn. Oh, yeah. Getting the, all the, it, just, it was quiet, but you knew that something. And it was a steady crescendo, the opening. And watching them take batting practice and being out on the field with knowing what's coming and you start to see them come. Mm -hmm. It was exhilarating. Gosh. And it didn't turn out well, but it turned out well the next season, yeah. which was great. Well, the national anthem turned out great. It was so, not bad. Yeah, it was, it, it was, was not bad. It was great. Okay, so athletes have superstitions. No. Do opera singers have superstitions? Sure, but I decidedly don't. Oh, you don't? No. So you have a superstition to not have a superstition. <gasps> Do you realize that? Right. You're right. No soup. No, I got to warm up with a certain. No. Certain, okay. Because I, it's such a precarious thing that I do. I mean, we travel mm -hmm. all the time. We're always in different hotels and different warm up rooms and different scenarios. If I n was sort of obsessed with this kind of rigidity, mm -hmm. I have to keep myself really like right. fluid. Okay. And then that's where my. I guess that's my superstition of like, yeah, whatever, it's all good. Sure, yeah. Whatever. I can make it work anyway. Trying to pretend you're not nervous. <laughs> well, sort of. You're trying to pretend you don't have a superstition. That's what you're trying to do. See, well, Joyce? I like I like feeling like no matter what the situation is, I can mm -hmm. I can I'll be okay. Okay. That's kind of where I put the frame of mind I put myself yeah. in. And it, it is interesting because we opened with this. Um, yeah, I'm just Joyce from Kansas. And it's to me it is fascinating. You have taken this city and this area around the world with you mm. as, yeah, I'm Joyce from Kansas. And yeah. everybody probably looks at you in awe because a lot of these singers come from Paris or they come from Genoa or they come from Argentina. So, yeah. But you come from Prairie Village, Kansas. I mean, what, what, do you, what do you tell people about this city, Prairie Village, growing up here and getting to be... I brag about it all the time. I mean, it's very funny because the way it comes to me is sometimes in interviews, people are like, oh, but you're from this Prairie village. What is this village you are from? Uh, uh, it's like, well, it's not really a village, but okay. yeah. it's all not right. really a prairie. <laughs> you have the cows here. Yeah, you say. Right. No, the horses not really... in downtown running in the streets. Huh? <laughs> not really. Like... I brag about things like the restaurant scene, the mm. Art Institute. Yes. Um, I, I mean, one of my best friends who runs an orchestra that I work with a lot is a huge art snob. I mean, he was an art historian. He's Italian. He's from Naples. And he came and we did our first concert here. And he comes to the, to the concert. He goes, Joyce, my Joyce, what is this museum you have here? What, why you never tell me about this? It's fantastic. It's fantastic. I'm like... I know, Julio, I tell you that all the time. Like, you don't, he didn't believe me. Uh -huh. So it's this sort of thing, like, you have to come. You have to experience it yourself, and it takes you by surprise. I will still get, like, conductors. Like, where did you learn the German? The German you sing is very good. You're from Kansas. How is this possible? I'm like, well, we have a good education in Kansas. <laughs> I went to Bishop Miege. Thank you very much. So I, I, I wear it very proudly. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times people ask me about it. And, and the way I describe it is, you know, we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we take our work seriously. We work right. hard. And, and 
I think in general we do it with great humility because we realize everybody is a part of the team. Right. Everybody's a part of making it happen. And so when it's my turn to produce, I mean, I had better do it at the highest level, but I'm equally as important as, you know, the stage manager or the mm -hmm. whatever. Lighting guy, whatever yeah. there is. And there is one other thing you do take with, take with you and take Kansas with you um, is after every recital at the end for your encore for the recitals, you sing some Could you? Way up high. I do. And they love it. And they all know it. Yeah. And it, the reason I love singing it is that it connects to their childhood. It's somehow I see all the people go, oh, mm -hmm. and it takes them back. Yeah. That's yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Well, we say there's, oh, I think we're going to lose it <laughs> with somewhere of the rainbow. Um, thanks for yeah. doing this. It's been fantastic. There is no place I don't know like home. I'm, I know there isn't. I don't know why I'm losing it right now, to tell you the truth. But it's just, uh, thank you. You're just welcome. thank you. And you are such a great representative worldwide, internationally, for this area in Kansas City and, you know, where you were born and raised. And we just love you for it. Thanks. Thank you. And thank you for everything. I mean, I, I grew up, you know, listening always with total class and integrity. Thank you very much. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Joyce Donato. There's just something about Kansas City. Oh, I can't.